What does it mean to be provided for? To have food on the table, good company by your side, perhaps the ability to depend on and lean into someone else, to let down one's guard and to be held and helped, cherished but challenged. We see story after story throughout scripture of God's provision, meeting people where they are and changing everything. But those glimpses, those change everything about everything moments that knowing Jesus unlocks, they're woven into our stories too. Threaded when in distress, we must desperately depend on God. Bound in those crucibles that require our mindful commitment to boldly believe the real food and nourishment offered us is indeed better than anything else. Thankfully, our good God gave us generously His Spirit to help with the realignment process, to throw out our resource roadmap in exchange for His. So what does provision look like in our lives? Friend, you are in for a treat. Welcome, everybody, to the weekend. Before we jump into the message that we have, I just want to encourage all of you to please consider prayerfully supporting the ministry here at Wooddale Church. Now, I know many of you already do, and I appreciate that a lot. But you know, as we talk about inflation and rising costs, it affects the church as well in many different ways. So if you've gotten out of the habit over COVID of regularly giving, I just want you to know your gifts are missed. We could use your help. And if you don't mind uh, just asking God what he would have you give to our ministry fund, I would appreciate that. And that allows us then to go full speed and full strength in giving out the hope of the gospel here, near, and far. So we've been talking in this season of our series, Head to Leb, about God's provisions. We've talked about the fact that God provides us faith to believe in him. He provides himself to depend upon. He provides us his power. And this weekend, I want to talk about the fact that God provides us vitality. In order to do that, I have a question I want to ask you, and here it is. What does it mean to really live Life. Now, let me give you a moment to digest that thought, all right? What does it mean to really live life? So, whether you're watching us from your apartment, your house in California, in Canada, somewhere around the world, or at one of our campuses or venues, what do you think about that? What does it mean to really live life? And while you're thinking about it, let me tell you what happened after Jesus multiplied the two fish and the five loaves of bread that we looked at last weekend. And if you missed out, you can go online and watch that message. After he was done taking a few fish and a couple loaves of bread and feeding over probably 10,000 people, 10 to 15,000 people, they wanted to make him king. You can imagine, right? Jesus, you can be our king if you keep us fed and uh, you keep us free of all our diseases. Well, that was not the kind of king that Jesus came to be. And so he slipped away alone into the hills. And then the crowd dispersed, and his disciples got in a fishing boat and made their way to Jesus, I guess we'd say unofficial headquarters, where he was staying and living there in Capernaum. Now, as they're rowing their way to Capernaum, the Bible tells us in John 6 that a great wind, a gale-force wind came up over the lake. 
And these guys are rowing against that wind and they're making no headway. It's like they're rowing in place. Mark tells us in his gospel that uh, Jesus could see them struggling. And he came walking to them on the water. And it says that when they saw him coming, they thought it was a spirit. Now, I assume that in his glorified form, Jesus must have been illuminated, so to speak, as he's walking across the waves towards them, and they are terrified. I don't know about you, but I would be terrified as well. I'd be frightened out of my mind. Who is this? What is this? And Jesus calls out to them, and he says, don't be afraid. Here I am. Now, Matthew tells us in his gospel that something else happened that John leaves out, that Peter called out, and he said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to Command me to come walking on the waters. And Jesus said, come. And Peter stepped out on the water. And you can read that a little later on. I think it's about Matthew chapter 14. Not now, but later on. Let's just get Jesus in the boat right now in the Gospel of John chapter 6. He gets in the boat, and uh, suddenly the wind is calm, and there they are, right at the shores of Capernaum, and they get out of the boat. Well, the next day, uh, the crowds that had been with Jesus on the other side and were fed by him, showed up in Capernaum because they found out that's where he was. Now, I don't know if they all showed up or some of them did, but when Jesus saw them coming and he knew what was on their mind, he said these words to them. I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understand the miraculous signs, but don't be concerned. It's an important word about perishable things like food. And we'll come back to that in a little bit, but you know, so much of our lives gets concerned with really perishable things, right? He goes on and he says, spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. So the people hear these words, And they say to Jesus, well, then teach us how to do the works of God. In other words, if you're not going to do miracles for us, teach us how to be miracle workers. Like, they're not getting it. And so Jesus goes on and he says to them, this is the only work that God wants from you. It's the only work that he wants. Believe in the one that he has sent. That's the only thing that God's asking you to do. And they look at Jesus. They're so stubborn, right? And they say to him, well, then show us a sign. Do something to prove that you are the one sent from God. My goodness, he's already been doing signs. I mean, the feeding of the multitude, was that not enough? Besides the miracles that he was doing as well? They are so incredibly stubborn. Jesus responds to them. He says, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. So he's taking them back to the wilderness experience, the provision of manna. He says, and now he offers you the true bread from heaven. So he's, he's doing a comparison. Remember what manna was, he says to them? Well, listen, the father has some true bread from heaven. He says, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Again, they are not thinking straight. 
Because the response to Jesus there in John chapter 6, you can read it for yourself, is, Sir, give us that bread every day. They are still thinking about manna. In other words, they're thinking with their stomachs, and they're not thinking with their hearts and their, their minds. They're not seeing what he's talking about. The other day, Marsha and my wife and I uh, made a huge mistake. Uh, we went to Costco, and for those of you who might be in another country and are joining us, Costco's like this, it's like this mega, this, this super grocery store, okay, supermarket. And uh, we went there hungry. Big mistake. We hadn't had lunch and we hadn't had supper yet. It was mid-afternoon. <clears throat> and when you go to some place like Costco and you haven't eaten, that's a, just not a good place to be because you don't think straight. And I was kind of like a kid with my mom. I remember when my mom would take us to the store, she would always say to my brother and me, don't beg for things. And, and I'm, I'm so hungry, I'm just going through Costco and I'm putting things in the you know, cart. Mars says, keep it out, we don't need that. Because I'm just thinking with my stomach. And then, you know, what happens, you get home and all of a sudden you realize you bought all this stuff you really don't need, but you were hungry in the moment. Listen, our world, the world around you, me, is starving right now. And I'm not talking about for food, though obviously there are some people in the world that are. I'm talking about a starvation of the soul. We live in a world that is looking that for, for something, anything that will satisfy, but but everything we're trying doesn't satisfy. You know, Cornell University did uh, a little bit of research around Super Bowl weekend, which was just a few weekends ago here in the United States. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have a big party. Maybe you did as well if you live in our country. And um, they found out that the average American who has a Super Bowl party, who kind of sits down and eats and watches the game, consumes 6,000 calories, 6,000 calories. That is a lot. They also found out that the next day on Monday, the sales of antacids go up by about 20%, which you can see why, right? But here's the point. You can consume so much, and isn't it amazing, a few hours later, you can be hungry again? The next day, you could be starving again? It's such a picture of our world. You know, the marketers say, Buy this or buy that, and your life will be satisfied and you'll be complete. And so we go out and we buy this and we buy that. And, you know, for a little while, maybe it, it makes us happy and fulfills us, and then, and then we're empty again. You know, marketers have this part right. We have a need, but it's not that, the that that the world offers us. Our need goes beyond that. I think I've shared this with you before, but it's by C.S. Lewis. It's, it's something he said. He said, you know, if you realize a desire in your life that this world just cannot satisfy, it just logically makes sense that you were meant for another world. I love that. Because in essence, what he's saying is, look, if you have these desires that the world can't meet, it's because you weren't made for this world. You were made for God. And only God can meet those desires. But you have to place and focus those desires on the Lord himself. Because he wants to meet your needs. Now we're going to pick it up in verse 48 of John chapter 6. Jesus goes on to the crowd and he says, I am, all right, if you haven't figured it out yet, he says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. Then the people began arguing with each other about what on earth he meant. He says, they said, how can this man give us this flesh to eat? Give us his flesh to eat. So Jesus said again, look, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Now, what does Jesus mean by all of that? I mean, is he calling us to be cannibals? And, you know, they accused the early Christians when they celebrate communion of being cannibals, right? Eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Jesus doesn't literally mean eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's just talking about the intimacy of how we have to take him into our lives. And in essence, what he's doing for us is he's answering that question which I asked you earlier. What does it mean to really live? He's giving us a great answer to that question. Now, to help us unpack that a little bit, let's explore it. In the Greek, there are two words for life when we think about living. And and the first word is bios, all right, from which we get biology, okay? And then the second word is zoe, transliterate Z-O-E, it's zoe. And while this means, you know, biology of life, all right, this means quality of life. So two different words that are used. And the word that Jesus is using when he talks about eternal life is this word Zoe. It is a quality of life. So when I ask you, what does it mean for you when I say, man, this is really living. This is real life. We're talking about Zoe. When Jesus is talking to the people in the New Testament and talking about eternal life, he's talking about Zoe, this quality of life. Years ago, I... uh, took Marsha on a belated 25th anniversary uh, trip. Uh, on our 25th, we just weren't in a place where we could do anything really special, but I think it's like our 30th anniversary, I was finally able to take her on a cruise, and we had never been on a cruise before. So shelled out the money, got it scheduled, and both of us were a little apprehensive as we got on the boat. I mean, first of all, it was just this idea that we're going to be with, you know, one or 2,000 people. Is it going to feel claustrophobic, right? And then it's, um, it's like, you know, what's the food going to be like? And, it, you know, is our room going to feel like a, a small little jail, a prison? 
Uh, will we get seasick? We're both exercise fanatics. Will the gym be uh, big enough? And, you know, I was worried that maybe the ship might sink because I'm afraid of sharks. And uh, anyway, about halfway through the cruise, all right? Now, I know some people have a bad experience on cruises. I've heard about that. But halfway through the cruise, I thought to myself, and I may have even said it to Marsha, now this is really living. I mean, every day they would come and clean up our room, and at night they'd fold our, our, our bed covers down and put chocolates on the pillow. And uh, every night I was able to get dressed up with my wife and take her out to a really nice restaurant on the boat, and we would have the best of food. The exercise gym was fantastic. We never felt very crowded. We enjoyed just holding hands and walking and, and being together. And the buffet, oh my goodness, phenomenal. And then the ice cream line, all the ice cream. About halfway through the cruise, they knew me by name and they would see me coming. And then and then this one girl in particular would say, no, not the little cup, get the big bowl for him. And they would just fill that up. Man, that was living. Now for you, <clears throat> it may be something entirely different. For you, really living might be, you know, Sleeping under the stars for a week in northern Minnesota, to me, that's really suffering, to be honest with you. But for you, that might be really living. For somebody else, it might be, you know, a week at Disneyland. For somebody else, it might be at the cabin with your kids all around you and your family just being together. For somebody else, it might be eating at your favorite restaurant, but you don't have to pay for it. I don't know what it is, but have you ever had one of those moments? What is one of those moments when you said, man, now this is really living? Does that mean you were dead before? No, you were alive, right? But all of a sudden, the quality of life you experienced improved greatly. It energized you. You felt vitality. You felt, you felt joy. You felt, uh, you felt strength. You felt power. You felt meaning. You felt purpose in that moment. But here's the problem with all those things that we're talking about. You know, sooner or later, the bread runs out, the ship sinks, right? It rains on your campsite and leaks through your tent, right? Families start fighting with each other. You get sick. I mean, life happens, right? All the time. In fact, there are some of you listening to me right now who are thinking to yourself, I, you know, I'm jealous of you. I'm jealous of people who can say at least for a few moments they really lived life. I'm waiting for one of those moments in my life. In fact, you may be thinking to yourself, you know, sometimes I wonder to myself if life is even really worth living because of all the stuff that just seems to be going on these days. And we're all conscious of what's, you know, happening in Europe and what's taking place in Ukraine and what's happening in our own country socially and politically and et cetera. It's just a tough world these days. It's hard to really feel alive because of those things. But, you know, I think what happens is that we sometimes confuse existing with really living. I remember when our oldest son was about eight or nine years old. He went through a terrible time at night when he just could not sleep. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. He wouldn't talk about it. And finally, after this has been going on for weeks, you know, he and I just, we just had this conversation. And I remember I can still see him laying in the bed and me talking and saying, you know, what's wrong? And finally, with tears, he just said, 
I cannot imagine existing forever. I go to bed at night and I start thinking about it. He's a deep thinker. I just can't imagine existing forever. You know what? I cannot imagine existing forever either. Listen carefully. To just exist, to just exist is hell. To just exist is hell. There was a a French philosopher, and I think I've talked to you about this before in another message, who once wrote a play, and the essence of the play was, if if there was a hell, it must be like a room that you're trapped in. There's no exit. That was the name of the play. There's no exit. And you're trapped in there with other people. There's, there's no door out. There's no God. There's no love. There's no joy. There's no peace. And you're relegated to eternity with all these people around you constantly judging you. And that's the only way you know yourself is by the, how they're judging you all the time. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, said this about hell. He said, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human race. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or worshiping themselves. I want you to imagine for a moment what this world would be like. I mean, it's, it's hard right now. It's bleak right now. But I want you to imagine what this world would be like if there, if there was an absence of God. If there's an absence of morality, an absence of truth, an absence of joy, an absence of pure pleasure, I want you to imagine all that's left is the worst of you and the worst of everybody. That's a taste of what hell is. That's just existing. I wouldn't want to exist like that either. But eternal life is different. Eternal life is actually something, and we're going to see this next weekend, so don't miss being with me next weekend. Eternal life is something that comes in and infuses our life. It begins the moment of salvation when we receive Christ. But listen, it just continues to pulsate and improve in our lives. And we will only just begin to live and experience the quality called eternal life when we enter into paradise and spend an eternity with God. You know, sometimes people think of heaven. They think of eternal life. They, again, they get confused with existence, and they just, it just sounds boring, right? Just going to sit around on a cloud and play a harp all the time. That's just such a you know, terrible twist and misunderstanding of what the future is going to be like. I want to read something to you. It's by an author and a pastor, Mark Buchanan, talking about heaven. Uh, Listen to what, what he says. He says, why won't we be bored in heaven? Because it's the one place where both impulses to go beyond and to go home are perfectly joined and totally satisfied. It's the one place where we're constantly discovering See that where we're constantly discovering, where everything is always fresh and the possessing of a thing is as good as the pursuing of it. And yet where we are fully at home, where everything is as it ought to be and where we find undiminished that mysterious something we never found down here. And this lifelong melancholy that hangs on us, this wishing we were someone else or somewhere else, it vanishes too. 
Our craving to go beyond is always and fully realized. Our yearning for home is once and for all fulfilled. The awe of deep satisfaction and the aha of delighted surprise meet and they kiss. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalmist said, you will show me the way of life, quality, not existence, quality of life. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Man, I know life is hard right now and challenging, especially for some of you. But listen, we're not encountering anything Jesus didn't warn us about in this sinful world, this world that just wants to exist. Listen, we have so much to look forward to. So in these difficult days, draw your hope. Draw your hope from what will be someday. Begin to understand you've been infused with this special life that we call eternal life, which we're going to unpack the quality of that some more next weekend. But God is doing and has done something great in your life and in my life. But be careful, okay? Be careful. Those of you who are families, be careful for your children. Because this world comes along and it offers false Zoe. It offers false qualities of life experience. The world comes along and says it's about sex, especially in our culture today. Or it comes along and says it's about success. Or it's about money. Or it's about things. Or it's about looks. Or it's about the car you drive. Or it's about this. Or it's about that. And, you know, we like we already said, we try all those things. But it's like, it's like when you see somebody who's hooked on drugs, right? They believe that they have to have that drug to be happy. But you're standing on the outside and you're watching them. And you're realizing that drug is destroying their lives. And so we run around thinking we have to have all these things to be happy. And God looks at us and it's like, you're destroying your life. You're destroying your life. He doesn't want that to happen to you and me. He doesn't want our lives destroyed. That's why Jesus says, I'm offering you the bread of life, a quality of life. I read something the other day by Tim Keller. It was very profound. A lot of what he writes is profound. He said, it's really important that we understand the difference between culture and gospel. He said, culture is always offering an escape from the truth. That is so appropriate for today. He wrote that a long time ago. That's so appropriate for today. Look at the culture around right now, and it's just, it just keeps providing escapes from the truth. The gospel, he says, the gospel points us and takes us to the truth. What is the truth? We are sinners, and we live in a sinful world. It's filled with corruption. But, see, this is the good news, right, of the gospel. But God loves us so much, he's come for us. He's come to take on himself the judgment, the punishment that we deserve. He's come to die our death. And Jesus turns around and he offers us this quality, this eternal life, this sense of meaning and purpose and joy and power. He comes to infuse that into our lives. He comes to make us part of God's family. He comes to give us a future and to give us a hope. That's what he comes to do for us. Jesus said this. He said in the passage, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Look what he says. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me not to do my own will. So Jesus does not come from the east to present us some kind of a mystical connection with the force that's out there. And he hasn't come from the west to give us some philosophy or ideal to contemplate. That's human religion. He says, I have come from the Father. I come from your creator to offer you this. And so the answer to the question, what does it mean to really live? The answer is this. To really live is to take into our lives the very life of God. Now, I know that a large percentage of you know this already. You know, to accept Christ, to be born again. But listen, there's so many of us that are born again, but there's no evidence in our lives that we're born again. What I mean by that is there's no vitality. We kind of walk through life downhearted and, you know, long-faced and discouraged and anxious. Oh, my goodness. How can you get through life when you live that way? It's not what God gave to us. Why would anybody be interested in our Christianity when we live and act like Pharisees? Like it's about moralism. No, this is about the infusion of a supernatural life into your life and into my life as well. He has come down. And all we have to do, it says, Jesus said, this is the only work my father wants from you, is just believe. Just believe. Do you believe? The other day I read something by Dallas Willard, and I'd read it before, and, and in what he was writing, the question he was basically asking was, where's the evidence in our lives that God lives in us? And, and then I read it again just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, somebody else w- had, was writing, and they said, in essence, the same thing. Can you point to anything you're, in your life that is evidence of God's divine presence? And that has really bothered me for for several weeks. I mean, it bothers me during the day. It bothers me at night. And I've been praying. I've been asking God, God, you know, where is that evidence? Because it can't be in just a, you know, a, a moral life, moralism. I mean, people who don't believe in God can live, you know, moral lives, be honest and truthful and helpful and all those things. And I'm not talking about some, you know, charismatic gift like speaking in tongues or, or whatever. Where's the, where is the evidence of that, that quality of life, of, of his presence in me and, and working through me? And to answer that question, I want you to make sure you're here with me next weekend. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that in this crazy world that we live in, you have given us hope for not existence, but hope for a quality of eternal life. You have given us a bread to eat that gives us vitality. You've given us yourself. And we thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, and I'll see you next weekend.